Insecurity is a universal human condition. So I remember this day very vividly. It was incredibly cold outside. There was snow on the ground, although not much. I think the roads were mostly clear. And I was in bed sick, and I was sure I was missing out on a snow day, although talking to friends later on, I think it wasn't a snow day. But I was sick, I had a fever, I was not feeling well, things weren't fully coherent for me, and I was actually in my parents' bed because there was one of those small black and white TVs sitting on their dresser that I could watch. And I think I switched the channel at the right time to watch as Tom Brokaw was announcing the space shuttle going up with the first teacher going into space. And I remember watching it as Brokaw was announcing, and then all of a sudden it went into flames and smoke, and the Space Shuttle Challenger was destroyed, and Tom Brokaw was trying to make sense of it, and he seemed to be talking so fast. I had a high fever, so I think it was just the confusion in my head. I couldn't quite make out if it actually happened or not, or if I was dreaming or daydreaming. It was very, very confusing. A day or two later, and I realized this was very real. My guess is nearly everyone in this room, especially if you're 20 or over, have a date like that in your mind, a universal catastrophe where you remember exactly where you were when you heard about it. The older generation remembers where they were when Pearl Harbor happened. Many people a generation later remember the exact place they were when they heard of John F. Kennedy's assassination. And more recently, your average millennial knows exactly where they were on that fateful Tuesday morning when they heard about two airplanes going into the Twin Towers in New York City. Recall, you can recall who you were with, what was happening, maybe even what you were wearing that day. These universal catastrophes are reminders that the world is not a safe place. As a kid growing up in the Cold War, I was very aware of that. I watched a few too many movies and also read the newspaper, which is not necessarily good for a kid. I was very aware of the Cold War and of the sheer volume of nuclear weapons the Soviet Union and the U.S. had. I was very aware of the sirens that would go off every Wednesday and the possibility, living this close to D.C., that we wouldn't be here in a year. I lived growing up with a sense of fear of the precariousness of life in this world. And it's not as if 2017 is much better, right? I mean, there is terrorism and threats from ISIS, even as it's being contained. There is an autocrat in Russia. There's a guy with a really bad haircut in North Korea. <laughs> Dennis Rodman and his friend. <laughs> and that's to say nothing of just the normal stuff that happens year in and year out, earthquakes and hurricane, recessions, car accidents, cancer, superbugs, and that deadly fear of just getting old and wrinkly and chubby, which is happening to every one of us. <laughs> Life is a precarious and fearful thing if you think about it. So most of us try not to think about it. It's much easier if you don't. But there is a lack of security, not just on a universal human side, but also on a very personal and individual side. Think about just the way that your relationships are constantly in flux. You are in a friendship circle, and then somebody new turns up, and you feel like you're getting replaced. Why is she being included? Did they get together without me? I think they did. I'm pretty sure they got together and I wasn't included. Why wasn't I included? If I'm not the funny one in the group, or if I'm not everyone's confident, then who am I? 
we lose our sense of place and our identity very easily. And this happens not just on a relational level, but on a personal level, especially when it comes to vocation, like work or school. You're constantly comparing and recognizing pretty quickly that you don't measure up to somebody. And if you don't measure up in an area that's really important to you, then what are you worth? What is your identity? Even some of the most talented and successful people, in fact, many of the most talented and successful people are deeply insecure and fearful. In a dangerous and constantly changing life, what can you count on? The psalmist in Psalm 125 has an answer. You can count on you. Your feelings and your experiences are what you can count on. No. <laughs> That's absolutely not the case, okay? If I ever say that, we're not talking about the Bible. This is a Christian church. It's God. God's always the answer, or Jesus. The little kids know this, but they've all left already. You cannot count on you or your experiences, but time and again, that's what we do. Instead, the psalmist says, turn to and count on God. Build your life on him, not on you. In Psalm 125, and you can have that open in your uh, service bulletin if you want, because we're going to look at it over the next couple of minutes. In Psalm 125, the psalmist is doing a compare-contrast between the wicked, crooked, and evildoers on one side and the righteous, upright, and good on the other. This is similar to Psalm 1, if any of you know Psalm 1, that is a compare and contrast. And I think there's a word in here that's worth highlighting when looking at the side that is the wicked and the evil, and it's the word crooked. And the reason to look at it is because it's a very, very rare word. I think it's only found one other time, if at all, in the Hebrew Bible. But one commentator said this is a very strong term because of how rare it is. And it means to twist, to bend, to turn away. And that's a great definition of sin. We often, again, think of sin as breaking some set of moral rules. This is saying sin is bending, twisting, and turning away from the intentions and words of God. Very often, crooked in this way makes it so that turning aside seems more right than following God's way. If you look at the first sin in Genesis chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible, that's okay, you have a phone, and if you don't have this app, Get Bible Gateway, it's a great way to look up any Bible verse in any translation, wherever you are. Genesis 3, listen to the crooked nature of what happens in the first couple of verses of Genesis 3. The serpent says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, that's not what God says, but he twists the words, right? And the woman says back to the serpent, oh, no, 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 we can eat of all the fruit in the tree, but the one in the midst of the garden we cannot eat, nor can we touch it. Except that God never said you can't touch it, just said don't eat it. She twists the words of God. And then in deciding what she's going to do, Verse 6 of Genesis 3, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was desired. She saw, it was delightful, she desired, she took, ate, gave it to her husband who also ate. And in that we have a twisting, what seems really good must be good. 
It's a distortion of the words and intentions of God that are carried out as a redefinition of what is good and right and true. And that's essentially what sin and wickedness and evil always are. And they are always defined in relation to God and his word. Crooked, twisting away. The opposite side is the righteous that the psalmist talks about in verse 3. Righteous basically means you're innocent and guiltless. You are justified. You are right with God. And in verse 1, they're talked about as those who trust in the Lord. And that word trust is also translated at times as where you dwell securely. So where you talk about you trust in the Lord can also in other places be you live in a secure city. So it might sometimes be translated to live somewhere safely or securely. So when you're trusting in the Lord, you are living or dwelling and finding your safety in the Lord. And so the psalmist is able to declare God's people dwell securely, surrounded by him. We see this in verse 1 and 2, and I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 straight through. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So the imagery that's being used to talk about how God protects and provides for his people is that of a walled city sitting in the midst of mountains. So that was basically, if you go back 1,000 B.C., 500 B.C., that was the most secure thing you could possibly imagine in your head, a walled fortress city and in the midst of mountains. Think about the weapons that you had in the ancient Near Eastern world. You had swords, arrows, um, spears. Uh, You know, you had small weapons. So what could those do against a fortress city? let alone what could those do against a mountain? I mean, today we can blow up an entire mountain. We can drill through a mountain. We can cut it in half. In that day and age, you could not do that. If God was comparing the strength and security of God's people to a mountain, that could not be moved ever in their imagination. And that's the big idea for this whole psalm. Your security in the Lord is more sure than the greatest natural security, like mountains, the greatest man-made security, a fortress city. Nothing can shake it. The psalmist goes on to say, in verse 3, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. And I'm going to stop there for a second, because it's, if you're going to literally kind of translate the imagery that's there, it's, The scepter is your rule or influence. It's a king's scepter. The rule or influence of the wicked has no authority on the land allotted to God's people. And it's important to know what that word allotment means in that ancient context as well. In ancient Israel, their biggest dream was of the promised land. When they finally entered the promised land, the land of Canaan, this was heaven for the ancient Israelite. Your allotment was the portion of the promised land that had been given and granted to your clan and your family within that clan. It's where you lived, farmed, it's land you inherited, and one day your sons and your family would inherit. This was such an important part of your identity and your well-being that if for some reason you came into debt, 
and had to sell your land, every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, you were supposed to have the land returned to you free of charge because that land belonged to your name. It was you. It was all your hopes and dreams. So the allotment, the portion of land for an ancient Israelite was everything. It was their livelihood, their wealth, their identity, their future. Except for one group in Israel, which ends up revealing the intention of the land. The Levites were the priests. They were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were the tribe of Israel that did not get any land. Why? Well, the Lord said to them, you will have no land because I, the Lord, am your allotment. I am your portion. You don't need land. You have me. And that was the intention of even the allotment that they were given in that promised land. But over the course of time, Israel's assurance was in their land, in the fact that they had a city called Jerusalem and a temple. God was with them. They had the land. They had a city. They had a temple. And over the course of time, temporary and physical things replaced eternal and ultimate. The land was meant to point to something greater. And that something greater came, as the gospel tells us, in Jesus. In Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus offers us God with us, God as our portion, our true and eternal allotment. It's why in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is able to talk about what we have in Christ as an inheritance. In that ancient world, you only inherited land. But Paul says, no, you have a greater inheritance. In Christ, when you heard about the gospel and believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. When you come to faith in Christ, your allotment is given to you. God takes up residence in you until the day when you are fully in the presence of God. That's your allotment. And it cannot perish, spoil, or fade, or be stolen, or taken, or lost, as 1 Peter talks about. What's yours in Christ is your true allotment. It's what you are meant to have in life. If I were summing up what verse 3 is saying, it's this. Evil, wickedness, is always temporary. It does not win in the end. God's purposes do, and they will always. If God is for you, who can be against you? But Psalm 125 does talk a lot about the, uh, the good, the righteous, as well as the wicked and the evil. And we have to ask the question is, are the promises of Psalm 125 conditional or certain? And by conditional, I mean this. Is, is the psalmist saying, if you are good and upright and righteous, then God will protect you like a mountain. That's conditional. Or is it certain? God will protect you like the mountains because you are his people. You are the righteous. If it's conditional, then all the metaphors are useless. Because if it's conditional, it's saying, 
if you are good, blameless, and upright, then you'll be secure. The problem is no one is righteous, upright, and good to the point where they can always be secure. No one then is like a fortress or a mountain. If my allotment is based on my goodness, then I have every reason to fear. Any little bit of slipping into stuff I don't want to be doing, and I might as well just give up. That's not a mountain. That's not a fortress. That's not the imagery that's being used here. I think Psalm 125 is speaking from the perspective of certainty. It's a psalm of assurance based on God's faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to him. Eugene Peterson says the emphasis of Psalm 125 is not on the precariousness of the Christian life, but on its solidity. So then, why are so many of us insecure and uncertain and fearful? The opposite of security seems to be fear, anxiety, and worry, right? Worry. I don't know if you're a worrier. Worry is anxiety about your circumstances. You're worrying about your kids, grades, health, money, or your kids, grades, health, and money. You're worried about something in this life that's circumstantial, right? Underneath of worry is what we talked about last week. Underneath of worry is pride. It's, this, it's the declaration inside of our heads that I know what's best for me and I need to be in control. And worry is basically a fear that you can't control what you think you must be in control of. You also notice that you only worry about what you value most. If you value looks and appearance most, you will fight every wrinkle of age like it's a stab wound to the heart. If you value your career most, then you will stay awake at night anxious to always be staying on top. So ask, what do you overvalue? And also ask the opposite. What might it be like to desire and value God most? To relinquish my need to be in control and maybe even to destroy the power of worry in my life. The opposite of security is not just worry. There's also spiritual insecurity that's found in our thoughts and feelings, often built around things like guilt and doubt, right? Like when you're struggling with guilt, you don't feel very secure in your faith or your future. And the problem is all of us at some point struggle with guilt because here's the deal. We all do things that we don't want to do or things we know are wrong. We think, say, or act in ways that we know aren't right. And then the voice comes into our head that doesn't just drive us to the cross for forgiveness. It drives us internally and says, you're a hypocrite. You claim to be a Christian, but you act like this? Ha! Ha! you sure you're a Christian? Are you sure Jesus cares about you? Why would he? Look what you've done. 
Look at the things in your head. Or we struggle with doubt. It's not uncommon to struggle with, is all of this Jesus stuff really true? You struggle looking at a world of injustice and suffering and with a God that we can't actually see physically. How can we know he exists? Doubt may be common, but for many of us it feels disqualifying. Am I really a Christian? The great thing about the psalm is that it is a psalm to the people of Israel. And as one commentator noted, Israel has a saw-toothed history. From the Exodus to King David to the kings to their time in exile, you see them walking from triumphant obedience to complete apostasy within a matter of days. At one moment, they're following God's instructions to bizarrely slaughter a lamb and put the blood over their doorpost so that on the Passover night, they will escape from Egypt. On one moment, they're trusting God, walking through a sea that's being opened and rejoicing on the other side. And a few days later, they are complaining at God, putting God on trial, accusing him of trying to starve them to death. A few days after that, and they are creating a golden calf and worshiping it as if it is their creator. Israel is at best intermittently faithful, essentially rarely faithful. But as you trace the story of Israel in the Old Testament, you find God is always faithful. And they are always God's people. He's constantly offering them love and mercy again and again and again because they are his. And the same is true for us. The opposite of insecurity seems to be people who are self-confident. And I actually think confidence can be a good thing because people who are confident tend to have perspective They're not easily shaken by small things in life. But confidence can also be a synonym for self-security. Confidence in me, dependent on my abilities and success, is actually the same as the definition of crooked. Crooked is turning away from God's ways and following some other way. The self-confident who are self-secure trust in their own way. A self-confident, self-secure person is not worried about judgment or hell because I'm a pretty good person. But the world's standards, by the world's standards, a person may be morally good but spiritually crooked because they're bent away from God, trusting in their own way. This is what the Pharisees were that Jesus came across. They were really good people who did not need Jesus. And they were further from faith than the very immoral people who recognized their constant need of Jesus. The self-secure, the self-confident, and good 
may be the most blind spiritually. What's at the root of our spiritual insecurity? It's that we look to our feelings and our circumstances. If it's bad feelings and bad circumstances, it's worry and guilt and doubt. If things are going well in life, then we're self-confident and self-secure, saving ourselves. The root of our spiritual insecurity is we look to our feelings and our circumstances because we don't know God. We don't know who God is, what he has actually done for us, what he says about us, and what he promises us. And so we don't fully trust God. We trust ourselves. Do you want to have faith, but maybe struggle? Do you desire to desire God, even though you don't always do? If you're at that point of just simply wanting God, even if you struggle, then God's promise to you and Christ's salvation of you are certain. In Ephesians 1, Paul said, your inheritance is guaranteed. In Romans 8.1, Paul said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not saying you won't screw up. It's that you're no longer condemned by your screw-ups. The end of Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not powers in this world, not the evil that can befall us, not even death can separate you from God's love for you in Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Not if you begin a good work, you must carry it on, but God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. And our psalm here says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on this, this psalm, said, we need to learn to live not by our feelings about God, but by the facts of God. He goes on to write, my feelings are important for many things, but they tell me next to nothing about God or my relation to God. My security must come from who God is, not how I feel. Christian discipleship is a decision to live by what I know about God, not what I feel about him or even what I feel about myself. And this comes from believing this truth, that what God says about you and your future, what God says about you and your future in Scripture is more certain than what you think, feel, or observe. What God says about you is more true than what you think, feel, or observe. This, this much is true. You will struggle in life. You will probably even sin. You may even at times doubt. I can guarantee you will lose your battle with staying young. Eventually, you will lose your health. People you love will die. The economy and your fantastic career may collapse. No matter who is president 
or even if America as you know it does not last. And guess what? It won't. It may last your lifetime, but it won't last forever. But even if all that stuff happens, it's actually okay. If your allotment, if your portion, if your promised land is in Christ, then it doesn't matter what else gets taken. Is your Christian faith like walking on a railroad track? Eugene Peterson wrote about this in his commentary, and I could relate to it. He said he would walk a mile to school along a railroad track, and I remember doing this in my dad's hometown, visiting my grandparents. We would walk along the railroad track to a diner that had hot dogs and milkshakes, and I would try as best as I could to walk the whole way on the rail, but could never quite make it. And then it was even more precarious the time that my friend Brian came with us, because both of us were about 12, 13 at the time, both overconfident and both trying to run to beat the other guy and at the same time shove the other guy off of the track. It was nearly impossible to make it and neither of us did. Sometimes we think about the Christian life in that way, that it feels like you're trying to walk on a balance beam while everyone around you is trying to push you down and knock you over, laughing if you fall. But according to this psalm, your salvation and your Christian life is not like walking on a railroad tie. It's like sitting in a mountain fortress. You can't fall. The Christian life does not depend on your moral balance or your never doubting perfection. It depends on him, not on you. God is a mountain, not a tightrope. Beth Moore wrote about this psalm, if you are in Christ, you can't get rid of him. Let's pray. God, at the end of this psalm, the psalmist offers a prayer and he concludes it with peace be upon Israel. That is my prayer for the people that are gathered here, including me, that your peace and shalom would be upon us, that if we come with guilt and doubt and worry and fear, that we would cast them upon you, find our allotment, our portion in you, and be at peace. In Jesus' name, amen.